In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tlaqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is What We Owe the Future by William McCaskill. What We Owe the Future. Uh, William McCaskill's a philosopher, and in this book, as the title implies, What We Owe the Future, some thoughts on how we should think about what we should be doing or our responsibility to the future. Again, I haven't read it yet, but based on what I saw about the book, found that very interesting concept to consider and think about what is our responsibility to the future generations. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is How We Read Now by Naomi S. Barron. How We Read Now, Strategic Choices for Print, Screen, and Audio. And so it's uh, kind of a meta experience when you're reading a book about reading And so as the subtitle says, Strategic Choices for Print, Screen, and Audio, the book looks at different research or research looking at how the ways that we read, for example, print, like a book I'm holding in my hands versus on a tablet or electronic reader like a Kindle versus audio versus even video, how do these different mediums, these different ways of receiving information affect how we learn and predominantly the research you focus on related to academics so for example college students or even adults or kids and how they did in learning different things based on um, how they were presented the information she shared lots of different research from different researchers so there's different ways it was conducted but that was a lot of what the book entailed was looking at how the different types we read affect us. And so you might think about this for yourself first, just from a practical and personal perspective. How do you experience reading when it's a book compared to how do you experience reading when it's electronic? And even electronic, of course, it's not all the same. It can feel very different on your laptop versus a tablet versus your phone based on the screen size. And those things can have impacts as well. And also, are there trends based on the fact that we're reading more online, or I should say on screens versus in print. And she talks about those issues as well. And so, um, as is often the case, there isn't some hard and fast rule that print is always better than um, screen or audio is always worse than print or whatever it might be. But there are different benefits, different cons or different effects depending on what you're doing. So. One important thing, something I definitely experienced when I was saying, think of your personal experience for me personally, is when you read a book, you're holding the physical book, you put generally more attention into it, or it feels like it even takes more attention. So it's interesting that, and this showed up in a lot of the research, that many people have this experience that when 
you're holding a book, reading a physical copy, it feels like it's more effortful or it takes more effort or you focus more than if you're reading on a screen where you might be scrolling or it depends on if you're scrolling or paging, depending on the type of reader you have. But that this, it tends to be people's experience. And this is what they found in a lot of research that when they ask people, they'll say that it takes more effort or sometimes what they'll say, especially younger students will say, I get more bored holding a book, which makes sense. You can feel that way, but the boredom can be because of that extra effort that it tends to take for us. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. And so this is something when people ask me, actually, um, one of my good friends, Sina, we one time had a, I don't know if I can call it a debate, it was more like an argument about reading um, versus audio books. And it, it, I won't get into the details of that, but which one is better. It, it, it depends on what you're trying to do and what the context is. So for example, most people like audiobooks because they can do something else while they read or while they're listening to the book, which has its benefits. Okay, you're driving and you listen to something or you're exercising and you listen to something or you're washing the dishes and you're learning or listening to something. That could be good. But of course, if you're doing another activity while you're doing the listening, you're going to bring less mental energy and focus as compared to if you're only reading. So they kind of do that in the the studies usually, you know, they're in a lab or, you know, in some kind of like setting that's more controlled. But what I think is important when we look at real world application is that when most people are using audiobooks, and again, you have to look at your own personal experience, there isn't a always read print or always do audio, they're generally doing something else. So of course, we're going to see a difference in comprehension, how well you learn things, and that's going to show up. And that's been my experience of what I was talking with Sina about that time is that I'll I focus more and I learn more when I'm holding the book. And actually these, uh, I think it's six years now, over 300 books, all of them I've had the physical copy. For me, I definitely feel a significant difference when I have the physical copy compared to reading an article on my phone or reading even longer texts uh, on a screen. It does feel different. And there's some reasons you might experience that on top of the attention, which uh, I'll try to touch on. But when I'm holding the book and reading it, I'm, I'm focusing more. But now you might be someone that says, if I read books, I know I'll read a few books a year. But if I do audiobooks, I might read 30, 40 books or listen to 30, 40 books a year or whatever the number is for you. And now that difference is significant. Now, maybe if you had read 30, 40 books in print, you would have gotten more out of them compared to if you listen to 30 or 40 books. But if it's comparing listening to 30 or 40 books to reading a few, well, then you could see for you it's beneficial to listen. So again, it does depend on your goals, what you're trying to get out of it, what your specific circumstances are, and people are different in how they experience things. So you have to look at all of those different factors. Now, another reason that print can be better when it comes to things like remembering specific details, remembering things, is that you get a sense of placement when you have a book. And I've experienced this a lot. When I'm coming back to talk about a book, I'll remember, oh yeah, this was on the top side of a left page and even maybe what part of the book, you know, early, middle, late, because you have these physical markers while you hold a book that you don't have, for example, with the e-reader. You're holding the e-reader, you turn a page and some even have a function where it looks like it's turning a page but you don't have a physical sense of where you are in the book. You might have a number, the page number, 
but you don't get that same sense. And that experience of seeing where you are in the book actually can have some impact, which is which is interesting. So reading tends to be, for most people with print, they get more into the book. And so, you know, when they ask students, they will say, oh, I prefer electronic, I prefer a screen, which I'm sure one has to do with the fact that even more than older generations, they're even more accustomed to being on devices from their whole life, basically. So they have even more of that that connection with it. But also it does feel easier. And so this is the thing where if we think about it, it makes sense. If something is easier, it usually means you also get less out of it. So if we make an exercise analogy, it's like saying, okay, you want to lift the the 20 pound weight or the 40 pound weight. Like, oh, the 20 pound weight seems easier, less effort. And then if we measure how strong you get, well, of course you get stronger from the 40 pound weight, but that's also more difficult. So it makes sense. Similarly, when you read with print and it tends, you don't have to, but people tend to put more effort into it. They put more effort. It's more mentally taxing. So they get more out of it. They get more of a result. So I think that part of it, it, you know, when they ask students, it's like, oh, well, if they ask students and they prefer digital or they prefer the screen, then why aren't they learning as much? Well, it makes sense. It's, they're choosing it not because they learn better. They choose it because it's easier, more pleasant experience for them. But that comes from partially the fact that they don't have to put as much effort into it. So um, I've experienced that myself, too. I feel like when I have the print copy, it has a different experience for me. Also, I'm used to it. I'm sure we can get used to training ourselves to, to screens in certain ways and to audio. For example, I, I at times when I'm listening to something I really want to focus, I might close my eyes or make sure other senses are not being um, affected as much because then I can focus more on what I'm hearing. But if I'm listening to something while I do something else, which I do sometimes, let's say, going for a walk, I always take in less than if I was just listening or if I was just reading those words. Other factors to consider, one thing about devices in general is there is a distraction effect we get just from devices being present. I've talked about research before that shows that even the mere presence of, let's say, a phone on a table, even if it's off or it's face down, creates some level of distraction, which we would assume is because our focus is on wanting to check the phone or to see what is on the phone. If it's our phone especially, we want to be wondering, what if we got a message or a notification? And that distraction makes us less focused on, let's say, having a conversation. So they've done research, for example, with people having a conversation together, and the presence or absence of a device can affect how focused people seemed or how much they remembered about a conversation. And so sharing my own personal experience, often when I'm reading, my phone is present and I see a notification or something will distract me or I'll be more likely to want to check it. We're always more tempted by something when we can see it, be it um, food or a drug of choice or a distraction of sorts. And so I'm more likely to just, oh, let me check something on my phone. But what I've realized is at times when I really want to get a good chunk of reading done, I'll put my phone out of sight. So I'll put it behind me, let's say charging or even in another room, but somewhere where I can't even see it at all. So we here we have that, that adage out of sight, out of mind does actually apply here, where when the phone is out of your sight, it's more likely to be out of mind as far as distracting you from what you have to do. So 
I might in the next segment talk about something that's called the shallowing hypothesis, this sense that have devices, and I think it's not just devices, but things like social media and, and uh, the commercializing of our attention, have they made us more shallow in general? And I'll speak just, uh, again, a personal piece there. I definitely still feel that if I consider the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, when I used to be in undergraduate studies, yes, we had our phones and texting for me, let's say, during my time in undergraduate, it was becoming even definitely not as common as now, but it was starting to happen. But I feel that my attention span was actually longer then. And of course, this is where research comes into play because you have to look at the different variables. I was, of course, younger then too. But I think partially it was because life was experienced differently as far as how I used my time or attention was shared. There wasn't this thing in my pocket that I could do almost everything with and a constant distraction, a very easy access to a distraction. So I feel that it was easier for me to go to the library. I was also in undergraduate studies and, and having to read for that. But it was easier for me to read then. What I did experience actually when I started doing the books of the week and reading a book every week is that my endurance for reading improved and increased and it took some time that at the beginning it was harder for me to sit and read for a certain like let's say 30 minutes straight um, and that got a little bit easier to do over time or my ability to read when I was a little bit more tired that improved over time so I really do think that analogy of exercise applies where the more effort you put in of course the more you get out that's pretty intuitive and that also you can build up that endurance so that you can sustain your attention for a longer period of time. Because that's something to keep in mind when we talk about, okay, screen better, or print better, or audio better, is that it's not just about the medium itself and thinking one is superior or inferior to the others, but recognizing how it impacts your ability to sustain your attention and focus, because that's going to be critical in determining how much you get out of what you're doing. So it's not just the medium, it's how you use it. Another thing to keep in mind when we're not making things black and white is that although we might say there's some reasons why digital is not as good in general for comprehension, for younger children or for children who have some, and even not just children, could be older individuals who have issues with reading comprehension or becoming good readers or behind in reading, sometimes digital access can make them first of all enjoy it more it can make it easier to get started and then it also can make them improve and then they might even transfer more to reading print and things better as well so again we want to be very careful not to get into these black and white that it's always better to do this or that you know it's not an and or um, it's kind of like a it, both and rather than either or i should say both and okay let's use both in different ways especially because she talks about how there's a movement towards academics in general going digital, whether it's digital textbooks or texts in general to videos. And we want to be aware of the impacts of that, not just to think, well, it's easier and cheaper, which it can be, but what are the impacts? And likely we want to be able to use both. But so this book um, gets into, as I was saying, different research and, and you can look at specific questions you might have. It's impossible to discuss all of the different studies that were brought up, but it does a, a you know, good job of looking at more recent research. I think this book came out a year or two ago uh, of different um, modalities of reading, reading, different mediums from print to screen to audio to even video, 
what the different impacts might be, how it can be important to keep in mind what are you trying to do when you're reading, what's your goal, and based on different factors you might make decisions. And that even things like reading with your kids, how you might want to be aware of using digital versus print, how there could be different factors to play there as well. So that's the book, How We Read Now by Naomi S. Barron. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I wanted to continue on this, um, the book, How We Read Now, or some thoughts on the book. I, I mentioned the shallowing hypothesis. I might share the, save that for the next segment and first start with something she talked about near the end of the book related to reading and how, how we learn. Also, it's just related to general education in general and how we approach it. What should we be teaching kids and also is memorization important, rote memorization, learning things in that way of knowledge that we consider facts, things of that nature. Is that needed or necessary? Especially when we know with things like Google, Wikipedia, so much information is literally at your fingertips. You can get it within seconds. So um, I think it's an important conversation to think about because I think, yes, at times we teach kids where we think memorizing certain things always has value. If they memorize the, this list of words or this list of historical dates, that's going to be good always. That's part of how school works and knowledge works and learning works, how we've always done things. And some of that might be excessive or not necessary, but I also don't think it means there's no benefit to learning things as far as facts and things of that nature, which I'll get into. And this is something if you've ever worked with, especially teenagers, because that's when they start to question things and challenge authority more. Kids might do it too, but you'll hear teenagers and college students regularly say things like, why do I have to learn this? Why do I have to know this? I'm never going to use this information in my life. Um, when is the quadratic equation going to help me in my life practically in any way. Why should I ever have to learn this? And some of it is some teenage angst and rebelliousness and not wanting to do the work, but some of it is right that there's things we are forcing kids to learn because we always thought we had to learn them and memorize them. But maybe they're not valuable. So I do think it's important to look at that. And she had a, a whole section about critical thinking and um, hard to even define exactly what that means. She was sharing different definitions or different descriptions of it from different people. But that's something that people have pushed towards when it comes to education, that more than just memorizing facts, we want to teach kids how to think. And I think that's actually very true. We do want to teach them how to think. And unfortunately, often how education has gone about when it's forcing kids to learn a set, um, a set of rules and facts, it's the opposite of that. It's like, don't think, just memorize. And so when we try to make everything so standardized in that way, we unfortunately make it where we discourage thinking for yourself and to, to think critically. It's just, no, just memorize these facts, be able to regurgitate them on a test, and you'll do, you're doing well. And I think that's not good. So that's a shift that I think is very important and valuable that we're moving away from that. However, it doesn't mean that learning things and knowing facts and those types of types of information are not helpful because 
whenever we are using creativity or whenever we try to come up with new ideas, we need to know what's there. And not only that, we synthesize old information to make something new. That is essentially what creativity is, is putting together something that already existed or two things or many things that existed, but in a way that hasn't been done before. So you need to have the ingredients. It's like you're making a song, you need the different notes, or you're making a painting, you need the different colors of paint to make the painting when you're doing something creative or making something new. So I actually think it's important that we learn things. Of course, you learn them in a deeper way. It's not just memorize the facts. You learn and understand. The reason why this is this way is because of this, and at least this is how we understand it. And that type of knowledge can actually still be quite helpful. So I don't agree with the mindset that if you can look it up, why should you know it? Because there is value in knowing, but then we can sometimes overvalue knowing, which we've done throughout history and still will hold on to that. So it's finding that balance. Because you talked about an interesting concept, I never heard of it um, described in this way, this, this term digital amnesia, which is basically when we know something is stored in a digital way or that it will be stored in a digital way, we're more likely to forget it. That's the amnesia. So for example, if you Google a fact just to know it in that moment, what they find is that people are less likely to remember that fact because they know they can go back and look it up again if they need it. So they're more likely to not remember it. Okay, well, what what year did this happen? Okay, okay, yeah, okay, it was 19, whatever. Now I can move on because I wanted to know if it was before or after something and then they maybe it'll stick because of that if they're thinking about it in some way. But because they're looking it up and because they know they can look it up, they're less likely to actually remember that information. And so there's a movement away from internalizing things, which can have some value. So for example, when we were younger, you would have many phone numbers memorized. And that can be really good in case you get into a difficult situation. But it could be that memorizing or keeping that in your memory might not have had so much value, or if it took time to memorize it would not have a lot of value. But it doesn't mean knowing all things would be the same way. So having some way of storing information can be helpful. It also depends on what we're talking about. Digitally, for example, you can make a list of things. And when you write it down, it doesn't have to be digital. Of course, you can write it on paper. You then won't feel this need to think about those things in your head. So that actually might take some of your mental energy away because you are thinking, okay, I better not forget this. I better not forget this. If you write it down, let's say set a reminder, you don't have that same anxiety about forgetting it. You don't have that need to keep it running in your head, kind of like an open app, taking up some of your mental bandwidth. So this digital amnesia, it was an interesting concept for me because I hadn't heard it described in that way, but I realized how true it was and how much I also can act in that way. I do have a tendency to really need things to make sense, sometimes to a fault, I would say. But in general, it means that if I look something up, often I have to understand it or I, I can't move on or it has to make sense or I can't move on. So it's good and bad because some things, it's okay to not know exactly all the details or it doesn't have to make sense. But sometimes it's good because it means when I'm thinking of something, I'll go a little deeper as you 
know hearing me, I tend to see the both sides of, of something, try to understand both sides of it. But here, going back to the creativity issue, if you want, let's say, a musician to make great music, they have to have been exposed to the classics and the greats, but given the space to then synthesize that to make something new. We can't just say, okay, never hear a song, but make a song. And of course, if they hear music, that's going to affect what they come up with. But knowing those basics actually can allow them to have a store of information to draw from as they create something. So the mindset that you don't need to know anything because all the information is there fails to take into account that when we're trying to create, when we're trying to think new ideas even, it's important to know what's there and to draw from those to create something new. Now, for the remainder of the show, I want to talk about another concept I mentioned from the book called the shallowing hypothesis. So this is essentially this hypothesis that because of how we are on devices in general, that you know, you're scrolling through your newsfeed on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is, these quick short bits, or you stay in, on each thing for a few seconds, this then lends itself to how we are in devices when you're reading, let's say, even a book. So now you're reading a novel or you're reading philosophy on a device, but you bring that same type of mindset into the reading so you don't go as deep. And it does does seem a bit intuitive. I do feel that way. I do think that if, for example, you read often on a device, you might switch that over time if you made that your focus. But going back to even that distraction that we have from devices, when you're holding something in your hand that can also, the phone itself, that can go to, you know, other uh, social media websites, things like that, that itself is going to be distracting. So, of course, if the mere presence of a device can be distracting, if you're holding the device to do the reading, we can understand that that might make you more likely to get distracted. My concern is of course about the reading i think she talks about this in the book like types of deep reading that people used to do or that lots of literature philosophy lots of topics might require us to do that we often are losing this type of reading and thinking as a result or this way of of approaching material we're looking everything looking at everything in a shallow way. So I think that's true when it comes to to reading and being aware of that and how devices might have an impact. I was thinking of this shallowing hypothesis and extending it even further to how we are in general as people because of our devices and because of things like social media and what it promotes or what it encourages us to do and how to think. I think overall there is a shallowing effect that has happened that deeper more meaningful conversations deeping more deep deeper and more meaningful types of reflection thinking more balanced ways of thinking about things deeper ways of experiencing life and connecting have actually become less encouraged less reinforced and there's an overall movement and tendency towards the shallow because i was thinking about how if you've heard the attention economy Maybe you've heard that term I talked about it a few weeks ago. Um, I forgot what the, the book was called. It was something about doing nothing. Um, because I can look it up, I didn't remember the title. Um, but but a case for doing nothing? Anyway, the book was talking about the attention economy and how 
we want to be mindful of how we're paying into that economy. And so when you hear people talk about things like Instagram, social media, and what they're trying to do, you'll sometimes hear they're trying to get your attention and sometimes they'll say they want to keep your eyeballs on the page. That's the whole thing. If they can keep you looking, if they can keep you on Instagram scrolling for an hour on TikTok, they are very happy just to keep your eyes on the screen. That's what they want. And then that thinking that it's the eyeballs made me have this sense of it's such a shallow type of thing. They just want your eyeballs on the screen. So you're looking at it, but you're not necessarily deeply engaged with what you're doing. And they don't care about that. They don't care if you're really thinking deeply and taking away a powerful message. Of course, there are people that will do um, motivational types of talks and things. And I actually think it's a shallow type of depth that they sometimes will say where it's like a quick way of understanding something very deep in a few seconds. And so they create these intense sound bites, but they might actually lack a lot of genuine depth because to capture something that deep will take longer reflection and longer explanations. But we are essentially just trying to, or they're just trying to keep our eyeballs on the page, but not our engagement in a deeper way. They'll talk about engagement as, and they want to keep you engaged on the page, but not a deeper engagement. And so when we look at even what gets promoted, it's people who have intense reactions to things, which are not very deep. If someone is, when we talk about histrionic reactions, which are just extreme intense reactions, they essentially mean they are over the top or they're too much to what's happening, but that's what gets attention. So if someone is laughing at something and if they laugh so loud that they you know, are screaming, laughing, that's going to get more of a um, reaction online, might get spread more than if someone laughs even the appropriate amount to what was going on. Or if someone is being really angry, that's more likely to get shares and likes and all those types of things. So what we're seeing is that social media is going to encourage a more shallow type of experience and response and reaction and deeper things don't get as much attention or won't get as much reinforcement. So I see this overall movement towards shallowing. And so we're going into the last segment and in the last segment, I'm going to talk a bit more about how I see this playing out in things like relationships, how we live our lives, even the goals that we set, that overall there's a shallowing effect that has happened that I think impacts almost everything that we do. So let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, continuing on this theme of the shallowing hypothesis, which in the book, How We Read Now by Naomi S. Barron, uh, she brought up this concept related to reading comprehension and depth when it comes to screens and how it tends to be more shallow. And the shallowing hypothesis is related to how our use of screens in general being more shallow when we're on our phones, we bring that into how we then read, even if it's a book, a novel, whatever it might be. And so I was saying how I noticed that this shallowing effect is not just, I think, related to how we read, but a lot of things in life in general. And so um, even in saying that, she shared in the book a few instances where we see some technological advancement and then people respond so severely that even 
even actually books was going to take away people's ability to, let's say, talk or think, or um, books were going to take away the need for the church or the, the Notre Dame because they won't need to come there to see the history that's in the, the cathedral. So I don't want to sound in that way also hyperbolic to say that we're becoming shallow and losing all our depth because of devices and social media, but I do see a movement towards that. And a movement means that it doesn't have to affect all of us and we have to actually, uh, it doesn't have to even affect us at all if we're mindful of it, but that if we don't think about it, we likely will go in that direction. So I was sharing how the way we use social media and things, they don't want our deep engagement, they want our attention, they want our eyeballs. And even what keeps your attention longer is going to be constantly changing things, right? So kind of the the notion of lots of bright lights flashing at you, that's going to keep your attention more than something that is slow, kind of like my voice right now, but something that's kind of slow and just giving you some information or something to reflect on, it moves away from that. And so I think as I was sharing, even when it comes to things like personality traits and characteristics, the shallow ones can get rewarded much more than the deeper ones. So things that are very dramatic will get to get a lot of response rather than something deeper. Even, of course, if we're trying to just get attention, the physical becomes more important. So not that it doesn't matter. And even there's things, let's say, for example, online that encourage fitness and taking care of ourselves. That's great. That can be very good. So it's not to say it's black and white. But overall, with things like social media, it's going to move our focus to more shallow things. You know, it's when you say someone is shallow because they focus on looks. Really, to me, it's not that focusing or having any attention to looks is bad. That's part of being human. It's how much focus we put. And so, of course, we're going to see a shallowing effect there as well, that looking good is going to get overvalued over time compared to other things. Another big one for me is relationships. And I've talked about this before. Uh, hashtag you might see is relationship goals, hashtag relationship goals. And it's usually a cute couple, a couple in a, have a cute picture in front of a cute location. Sometimes it's things you'll see nice supportive things. One couple or one member doing something for the other person or a certain type of love. Here's my parents and how my dad adores my mom, you know, in different little short videos. And it can be sweet. But my concern when I see things like this relationship goals, and it's something that's on social media, is that it starts to make people focus on a relationship that looks good online and looks good in a post, a short video or a picture, rather than what we should be valuing, which is a relationship that is healthy and strong and feels good to the people inside. So my advice on that is don't worry about creating a relationship that looks good to others. Focus on creating a relationship that feels good to you and your partner. And don't judge a partner uh, relationship. It also would be a partner, but don't judge a relationship based on how it looks online or looks even in person, but looks, a relationship needs to be judged by the people experiencing it. Because I can't tell you how many times I've worked with couples and they've even said themselves, for example, oh yeah, everyone thinks we're like the model relationship. Or kids of divorce who are maybe now adults or even still kids, like, oh, everyone thought my parents had the best relationship because it looked so good or, you know, they would fight like really bad in the car and then we would get to the dinner party and they were so funny and fun and lovey-dovey with each other that everyone thought they were 
so in love and so happy that, you know, everyone was shocked when they they got divorced. So I think, unfortunately, we can see a cute picture and think, I want that, which is understandable. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to want to look cute and make a cute picture with your partner. That's understandable to want that. But I think, unfortunately, it encourages us to look for that, to think that's the important thing. So what I would hope is that you have a good relationship and then you take a cute picture together. That's fine. But the focus is on the good relationship, not the the cute picture. Or going back to that shallowing hypothesis, physical attraction is a very necessary part of a romantic relationship. So sometimes people will say, well, and when I'm looking for a partner, here are the things I'm looking for. And they'll talk about physical attraction. And they might even talk about some physical attributes as far as, you know, height and body type and different things. And then they might say, you know, oh, I, I don't want to be shallow. But no, it's not shallow to be, to care about looks. It's actually something you have to care about in a romantic relationship. There has to be that physical attraction and having that sexual spark. The issue becomes when we overvalue something, right? So it's just like, let's say financial security has, that has value, pun intended. When you're looking for a partner, it can have value. The problem becomes when we overvalue it, where it's the only thing, or we want the person with the most money. We think that's the right relationship. That's problematic. And so similarly with physical, if you're looking for the person who's the most physically attractive or that's the only thing you focus on, you can get yourself in trouble because that's a shallow relationship if it's focused too heavily on any characteristic, but something like that that is needed. But after having a very strong romantic physical attraction and connection, more of it necessarily is not going to have an impact. And so you might have nice wedding pictures, but not necessarily a happy marriage if you do that. So what I see happening is people's focus with things like social media, of course, it's not like people didn't care about looks they have in all of human history. But overall, and it's not just about looks, there's a focus and shift towards the superficial and the shallow rather than the deeper things. Because, for example, when we look at a romantic relationship, of course, you need physical attraction and connection and chemistry. But what we find is the most important predictor of a happy marriage is the quality of the friendship between the two partners. So that actually means outside of the sexual attraction and the connection, how strong is that friendship, the quality of that friendship? That's going to lead to a more lasting marriage. And so this is um, based on research by John Gottman, who's done decades of research looking at marriages and what makes them work, what makes them not work. And that's one of his central findings is that the quality of the friendship is that most significant predictor. And can that be displayed in a one-minute video or in a picture? Not likely. You might feel something in a picture the way two people are smiling at each other makes you feel like they're so in love and so connected. And you could be right sometimes. There's some things that might show up in a picture or video. But you're not going to genuinely and generally measure the quality of a friendship based on an image or something that can be shared. And so this is why, yes, relationship goals can make sense, but to realize that most of the important and significant relationship goals won't be able to be displayed online, won't be able to be seen online. And so when we're trying to create a relationship, if we're in any way distracted by those things, 
we're going to be creating a relationship in the wrong way or possibly looking for the wrong things. So in relationships, I see this a lot on top of when people think of relationship goals, if we look at those, those pictures and these cute videos, it doesn't show what really does make a strong relationship. I mentioned the friendship, but maintaining a strong relationship is a lot of not so pretty things or things you're going to show online, let's say. They're not interesting. It's having an awkward conversation in a moment when you could have avoided it. So it actually would have looked cuter online if you posted a picture, you know, snuggling up, let's say watching TV together, smiling. But instead, you're a little bit frustrated because you're having a conversation that doesn't feel so good. And so again, this if we use the parallel and the analogy of reading, like I was saying, if you read digitally and aren't focused as much, but when you read with print, you're more focused, well, it's harder when you're reading print, but because of that, that difficulty and that challenge makes you learn more. Similarly, in a relationship, when you do the more difficult thing, it makes the relationship stronger. It helps you work through things and get stronger in the relationship. So if we're looking for a relationship that looks good, we'll miss the part that actually makes the relationship good, which is stuff that doesn't look good. There's no excitement to it. Even if you're making a movie, these are the scenes that probably will get left out of most movies about a love story will be these kinds of talks uh, and conversations and moments. Um, you know, there are some movies that are like that. Even I sometimes joke, I like slow movies, slow, depressing movies <laughs> at times even that get deep into something, but it feels very real because it's more like real life rather than magical moments that could be fun and has some you know it could be fun in a movie and have significance and be enjoyable but i really enjoy movies that it's it seems more real like here's a conversation that these two people had that didn't even go so smoothly for a lot of it didn't feel maybe good when they were in it but that's what makes a relationship strong is to have those talks so if you're looking for the relationship that looks good to others you'll go away from these things or you won't even think about these things. I just want to look cute with my partner and post pictures. That's That can be okay to have that part of the relationship. But what's going to be more important is what you create with one another and looking for those things. So as I said, this shallowing hypothesis that the book talked about and the shallowing that I think we're experiencing as individuals or as society doesn't have to impact you, but it will if we're not mindful of it. I shared earlier, I definitely notice a shallowing of my attention span that's happened. Even watching a video, sometimes you look at a video and you see it's like two minutes long. Like, oh, okay. If it was like 30 seconds, maybe I'd watch it. And I've definitely done that. We are definitely um, exposed to an abundance of different things that we can look at. And that actually it can be harmful in a way. It's nice to have so many choices, but you also get bombarded in a way where you don't want to give too much attention to one thing. And we also experience this fear of missing out. And, you know, we call it a fear. Sometimes it makes it seem like it's so dramatic. But even if it's like a feeling of missing out or this discomfort of missing out, it can keep us in this sense that I have to keep looking. And that's actually what social media thrives on. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time on TikTok, maybe because of my age. I just wait a week and see it on Instagram. But when you look at TikTok, it just keeps bombarding you with the next video. And then when it starts, it makes you feel like you're going to miss out if you don't see it. It's so hard to stop once you've started. So we get bombarded with things we feel like we're going to miss out. But really what we miss out on is truly enjoying and being in the moment with what we're experiencing. And if we even make another connection here in relationships, we hear this often, almost every 
couple I've seen, or I shouldn't say that, but a lot of couples I see will deal with issues of one or both people being being on their phone too much, right? That's, you've probably heard that. Oh, she's always on his, her phone. He's always on his phone. And there could be lots of reasons for that. Also could be they're avoiding something in the relationship itself. But as uh, an experience it, itself, it's something where people are taking away from their experience. They're shallowing their experience with one another because of their devices, because of social media. Again, because it's the easier thing to do in the moment, but we pay the price. When we do the easier things consistently, we pay the price. Sometimes it could be good to do something more comfortable, but overall, you put in the hard work, you put in the the effort to do the more challenging, difficult things, and you reap the benefits. You do the easier thing, you get easier results. You go to the gym and don't want to lift anything, you're not going to get stronger. You push yourself in the moment, it's harder but then you get to feel stronger and be stronger. And our relationships are the same way. Avoid the conversations, avoid the deeper communication and connection. The relationship gets worse. Sometimes those conversations are more difficult, but that's how you grow the relationship and keep it strong. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahid Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.